Erev Tov, good evening. It is so good to have you back with me today. We are in the introduction of Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin's Keter Shem Tov, Volume 3. We are in the middle of exploring 51 differences between Sephardim and Ashkenazim. This is Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin's retort back to, we're all just the same with a few differences. Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin is trying to show there are many more than just a few differences. And we are on number 25 of those 51 differences. Today, or maybe yesterday, depending on where you are in the world, it is the Azkara of Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin. So Min Shemaya turned out that way, I didn't plan it that way, uh, that it is the day of passing, the Yortzeit of the author, Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin. And I hope and pray that the Torah that we study together today should be a zechut and give nachat to his neshama. B'zalat Hashem. So if you're in the Roman numerals, you're going to be on page 20, and I think that puts you on page 18 of the PDF. Am I right? Yes? So you'll see on page 18 of the PDF, which is 20 in the Roman numerals, the last sentence before all the footnotes. It says, Chafhei. Rabbi Shem Tov again mentions the following difference between Sefaradim and Ashkenazim. Sefaradim en mevarchin baruch sheptarani. Ashkenazim mevarchin. Sefaradim do not recite the blessing of blessed are you Hashem who has exempted me from the punishment of this young man. When, when is this baruchah recited? By a bar mitzvah. Very good. When a bar mitzvah becomes of age, so this barcha is usually recited by his father. Baruch sheptarani meoncho shelzeh, or shelazeh, depending on which nosach you may be using. If shelzeh are two separate words, or shelazeh are one word connected. Nonetheless, as Rabbi Shemtov Gagin, Sefaradim do not recite this blessing, and Ashkenazim do recite this blessing. Now he refers us, in the footnote 68, to his original Keter Shem Tov, the Tzayid Shin Yud Chet, in which he does discuss this matter. And I didn't feel like it was that important to go in detail to why and why not. This Beracha originates in Bereshit Rabbah. So the origin of this blessing to recite over a young person who comes of age seems to be Our rabbis tell us in the Midrash that a person is responsible to take care of his child until that child, that son, is 13 years old. And from here on in, uh, here on out, Blessed are you Hashem who has freed me from the punishment of this one. Now this Barakha seems to say that you have an obligation to take care of your child. And the moment that the child reaches adulthood, adulthood is the age of 13, what happens at 13? At 13, a child gets a job, they buy a house, they get married, they leave the home. And because of that, at the age of 13, you're no longer responsible for them, not financially, not religiously, not in any other way. And because of that, it's a time where a father makes a blessing of, okay, I did my part, now you're on your own. This is mentioned by earlier Ashkenazi rabbis that this was the custom then to recite this blessing 
by the Bar Mitzvah, it then leads into a whole conversation surrounding whether you say this blessing with Shem Malchut or without Shem Malchut. What is Shem Malchut? When we say you recite a blessing with Shem Malchut or without Shem Malchut, what does that mean? You don't say the name of uh, Shem uh, while saying Rabbah. Right, so Shem is the name, so Baruch Atah, the next phrase, Adonai, that was Shem. And then Malchut is Eloheinu Melech HaOlam, King of the Universe. When you recite a blessing with Shem Malchut, it really becomes a blessing. What does the Rambam say about any blessing that doesn't have Shem Malchut? Does anyone remember know the laws of Brachot? Well, I'm sure the Gemara says it also, but the Rambam, I just recently reviewed that. It's not a blessing. It doesn't count for anything. What's the purpose of a bracha without Hashem's name? And so there was an argument among many authorities. Do you say this blessing at all? Do you say this blessing? If you do, do you say it with Hashem's name? Do you say it without a Kadosh name? What's the value in general of saying a blessing without a Kadosh name? Can you tell me of other brachot that you know of where there may be a conversation surrounding? Um, so it's, it's a bit uh, specific, but... Regarding the bracha of the morning, there's a Moroccan minhag, it's not the, the major one, which is to skip the Shemuel Malchut. I think it's in Metnes, where they just say, Why? Tell me why. Because uh, the Shulchan does not mention this bracha, or say not to say it, I'm not sure. Maran says this bracha is a, a mistake. The who? Yeah, very good. So one of those cases where Maran says not to make a bracha, and the Arizal says to say the bracha, and then the rest is literally history. There are other places like this. I'm thinking about a wedding. Can someone tell me about a bracha that's recited by a wedding? Or after a wedding? There's a very special blessing that is recited after a chatan and kala go home together. This bracha, as beautiful as it is, is not found in Talmudic literature. It's because of this, many of the Rishonim say one shouldn't say any bracha that our rabbis did not actually institute to be said. And so there's an argument whether one says the bracha, they don't say the bracha, whether they say it with Hashem's name, without Hashem's name. Most likely none of you have ever heard of this bracha, so it means that the rabbis who advocated for not saying the bracha were successful and they got their way. And I'm thinking of other places, anywhere else where you might know of saying a bracha or... Okay, very good. That's for. Okay, well, you should say the, the bracha in the first place. So you, some people skip the Shem Malchut, something like that. Over there, it has to do with whether you should say the bracha after midnight or not. And there are some who, who skip the blessing, but that's already not because of the origin of the blessing, but because of the timing of the blessing. Very good. Okay, so there are examples like this all over the place. Uh, there are some who read into this bracha that a father is obligated. In all of the Averot, their children, parents in general, are responsible for educating their children. So any Averot that the children do until they reach the age of 13 somehow becomes their problem. And now from the age of 13 and onwards, it's not my problem anymore. Blessed are you, Hashem, who has now exempted me from the, the Averot, the suffering of this child that has caused me. In different, Rishon Tov Gagin has a debate whether that's an accurate understanding of his Berachah or not in his Ketar Shem Tov. And nonetheless, this is definitely a custom among Ashkenazim. I don't know whether Savaradim say it or not. Uh, some people do, some don't. I've never heard somebody recite it with a blessing. Though it could be, it could be that I did see the Gona Vilna or others like him uh, who wrote that one should say it with a blessing. And that's already 
that's already a different question on its own. Curiously, does one recite this blessing when a girl becomes bat mitzvah? A young lady reaches the age of 12. Do we recite a blessing? What do you think? Have you ever heard? I'm insecure. Have you ever heard anyone do that before? No. I, I, the difference is with a bar mitzvah, you have in Beknesset, like the, the father gets up right after this kid's been called has his aliyah. Like in a bar mitzvah, what? Trust me, when it would have happened, you know. Trust me, I can't. I can't recall it. I mean, I'll probably pay less attention. No, you're you're right. And the reason you can't recall it is most likely it's not a thing that is done. But in general, it's a good conversation to be had about a bat mitzvah and becoming a bat mitzvah. And, and is there a bat mitzvah celebration or not? And, you know, I believe it was Rabbi Moshe Feinstein who wrote that a bat mitzvah celebration is forbidden to do. That's something that uh, the Reform Jews do. And because of that, we're not allowed to do it. And he was adamant against such a thing. Uh, the Benish Chai already records that one should make a celebration for a daughter who becomes a bat mitzvah. Albeit the Benish Chai does suggest that it should be among women with the mothers and the daughters and it should be a, a family and friend event of sorts. Whatever it would be, Rabbi Shemduv Gagin has a fascinating tangent he takes, maybe we'll do it on a different day, about women and learning and mitzvot and growth and how it's appropriate for Jews who believe that women should learn and do mitzvot and, and so on and so forth, that they should also have this blessing recited over their daughters as well. But I really believe that this is it's a very important conversation to be had, though Right now is not my right place to take this tangent. But if you own a Ketel Shem Tov, you'd like to see a footnote, I would recommend looking on page Shin Chaf uh, to see what, what uh, Rabbi Shalom discusses about learning to laugh for women. On the top of page 21, which is 19 of your PDF, the next difference between Tzavardim and Ashkenazim, Chavav. Now this is very apparent in my house, depending who's putting the children into bed at night. If it's my wife or if it's me, there are going to be two different versions of Shema Yisrael that we say there. Don't be afraid. We believe in the same Torah, so we have the same Chumash, the same Pesukim are there. But the question has to do with the rest of Shema Yisrael. Let's see at the top of page 21. Chavav, Sefaradim, Koflim. Sefaradim, repeat the words, Ani Adonai Elohechem. Or perhaps in today's Sephardic community, Adonai Elohechem Emet. We repeat those words. Ashkenazim, they say, El Melech Neeman, Kodim Shema. They say, El Melech Neeman, before they say, Shema Yisrael. What are we talking about? What's going on over here? You have to do one of these. So which one of them do you do and why are you doing it? Okay, very good. Very good. Very good. So if you look in the Shulchan Aruch, if you're fast with Safariya, or you could just hear me read it. If you look in Shulchan Aruch, Oachain, that's the first volume of Shulchan Aruch, in Siman Samech Adav 61, Maran writes in the third halakha over there. In the reading of Shema, there are 
245 words. And in order to have the words number 248, which are corresponding to the body parts inside of a person. Now, you know, there's a good conversation to have, again, at a different time. What exactly are these 245, uh, 48 body parts and the 365 sinews and how do Chachamim reach these numbers? What is the significance of these numbers? For a different time. Nonetheless, our Chachamim assume that inside of a person's body there are 248 uh, limbs. How do you count 248 limbs? Because you could try, start counting your arms, your legs, your eyes. You reach, you're not going to reach 248. I'm, I'm telling you that the way you count it, it's not going to happen. But nonetheless, our Chachamim this is the number they give us, and because there are 245 words of Shema Yisrael, we want to have every word of Shema Yisrael connect to one of our body parts. Why? Also another question for a different time. Mesayem shaliach tzibur, Adonai Elohechem emet. The shaliach tzibur, that's the chazan, he repeats the words, Adonai Elohechem emet. Why? Because now he just added three more words, three more words, so three plus 245, even I can do that math, hits the number 248. So he finishes, and then he repeats those words again a second time. The Ramah mentions that there's a minhag to say, El and whether you do that with a minyan or without a minyan, but this is the difference between Sefaradim and Ashkenazim when it comes to completing the 248 words that they want to reach inside of Shema Yisrael. Chaf Zayin. Number 27. Sefaradim, and this happened recently. Betisha ba'av, shacharit u'mincha, both in the morning services and the afternoon services of Tisha ba'av, the Sefaradim chotmim bivrachot haftara ad magen David. The Sefaradim, they say the blessings on the haftara until the blessing Baruch Hashem magen David. Ashkenazim nohagim ken, gam biyom kipurim v'mincha. That's what he meant to say. And Ashkenazim, they do this also in Yom Kippurim of Mincha, but he tries to show that there's, in the footnote 70, that there's really no reason to do that on Yom Kippur, Yom Kippur and Tisha B'Av. Though they are both 25-hour fast days, they're not comparable with each other when it comes to uh, reciting the blessed in Haftarah. I didn't feel the need to really delve deep into this one, but this is something, if you'd like to look into, why Sefaradim and Ashkenazim may differ when reciting the blessings on the Haftarah on Yom Kippurim versus Tisha B'Av. You're welcome to do so on your own. Kafchet, 28. This is an interesting one. It's interesting because it's said quite simply. I wish it would have said more. And this has been one of those things that has always been curious to me. How it happened, how did it develop, how did it become. But let's read it together. Sefaradim Ashkenazim. Einam nishtavim benigunei haparashiyot v'aftarot. We are not equal, meaning we're not the same when it comes to the tunes in which we chant the parasha and the haftarah. We have different tunes when it comes to the haftarah of chazon before Tisha Megilot, And we have different tunes for the five Megilot. Every one of them has a different tune. We also don't even share the same tunes when it comes to the books of Tehillim and Yov. Let's just pause for a moment. I think it's fair to say that for sure this is very different 
Sephardim and Ashkenazim don't have the same tunes for reading the Torah or the Haftarah or the Nevi'im or the Keduvim or anything else that comes along with it for that matter. Now Sephardim themselves have different tunes. Tell me some of the Sephardic tunes that you don't have to sing it to me, but just tell me some of the different Sephardic tunes that exist. Like a big difference between like uh, Yerushalmi uh, and like like more Western, like Moroccans and Tunisians and for sure. So, so the Yerushalmi tune versus the Moroccan tune or the Tunisian tune, I'm pretty sure the Spanish Portuguese have their own tune. Yes. Uh, also, uh, you have uh, you know even in the Yerushalmi tunes, you might have different variations depending where you're in, where you're from. You're Syria, you're from Egypt, you're from wherever else. There are a number of different tunes that go on. Even in the Sephardic community. But he's saying this is one of those things where we're not all the same. We don't even, yeah, we read the same Torah, but we don't even read the same Torah the same way. Now he says this a little bit differently in his Ketel Shem Tov. I want to read that to you for a moment. Rabbi Shem Tov again writes the following. Kol Sephardi as Sephardim Shabbat All of the Sephardim in the world. They have 15 different types of tunes. These are them. One, Kiryat Torah, Torah reading. Two, Nevi'im, the prophets. Three, Tehillim. Four, Shira Shirim, the song of songs. Five, Esther, the Megillah of Esther. Six, the Megillah of Echa. Seven, the book of Eov. Eight, Kiryat Hashirim Shabbat Torah, reading the special songs that are found in the Torah. For example, A special song in the Torah. The, the song by the sea? Or very, very good. The song of the sea, that's, and then continues into one Miriam saying. And you have, very good. What else? Give me another Shira in the Torah. Hazinu Hashemayim Vatabela. That's right. Very good. Nigun Hazemirot, Nigun HaMishnah, the reading of the Mishnah, Nigun HaTefilah, the tune of the prayers, Nigun HaSedichot. The tune of the Sidichot. I love Sidichot, so I'm actually very excited that Sidichot is less than two weeks away from now. Everybody else gets pressured, Sidichot is coming for me. That's the best news I heard all year, Sidichot is right around the corner. That Sidichot, my favorite tunes of the whole year happen in Sidichot. For me, almost when Sidichot ends, the tunes of the holidays have become boring all over again. Sidichot. Niguna Tefilot, the Amim Noraim, the tune of the high holiday prayers. Every community has its own tunes for high holiday prayers, but there are special tunes that, depending where you come from or what you've connected to in your life, not everybody comes from something they connect to, and not everybody connects to, everybody finds a place where their neshama feels, and for some people that's going to be Kal Nidre, for some people that will be Echa'are Ratzon Lipateach, for some people that will be El Nora Anila, for some people those things aren't even in their Sidul, so they have to have different songs, for whatever person, whatever it is, but there are tunes of these prayers. The Taniyot, there are tunes on fast days. Nigun Azharot B'Shavuot, and the readings of the Azharot. What are the Azharot? On Shavuot, what are those? Commandments. The? Commandments, yeah, very good. The 613 commandments, those of us in Chutz Haaretz, we split them up. On the first day we read half, and the second day we read the other half, and those in Eretz Israel. Well, you have a long Shavuot ahead of you, and they say all of the Azharot, 613 commandments, in one day. Aside from this, there are special tunes for the Haggadah of Pesach. 
If you go to Iraqi Jews, they have a beautiful tune they read the Haggadah in. Very often they translate it into uh, Judeo-Arabic of Iraq. You go to Moroccan homes, you'll hear a Moroccan tune of the Haggadah and very often translated into a Moroccan Arabic. You go to a, a Yiddish people, so my in-laws, they read the Haggadah in Hebrew and in Yiddish and they have a tune in which they chant the Haggadah. Everybody has these tunes. Uve Kadesh Uchatz, Uneganim Neuminhu, there are all kinds of tunes of Kadesh Uchatz and other parts of the Talmud, Vatanya, Kal Vachomer, Tiyufta, Ibaeg, Vagomer, Ufrat Benugane, Aftarot, Tishabav, Kedem, Chayotzeh. And there are special, uh, especially you'll find special tunes for the Haftarot of Tishabav and the Kinot of Tishabav. The kinot of Tisha B'Av in some traditions are gorgeous. I'll tell you there are some times where I feel that the kinot that we sing at Tisha B'Av are sometimes happier than what other communities sing <laughs> the rest of the year, even on, I don't know, Purim or Simchat Torah. But there are beautiful, moving melodies that are sung throughout the year. And he has a footnote here at the bottom of the page in his Ketar Shantov where he says, these tunes, Asher Sfaradim, that the Sfaradim sing, in all of these occasions. Now it's very unusual because the Sfaradim don't all sing the same tunes. But let's pretend for a moment there's one homogenous group known as Sfaradim. We have a tradition in our hands, in the hands of our forefathers. That these still are the same tunes from the days where people knew how to read the Torah properly. These are the last remnants of the original Hebrew music. Ivri, Ivri music that existed before the destruction of the temple. Says, and I especially praise the Jews of Egypt. That almost all of them pronounce the Tanakh properly, correctly. And who blessed the Egyptian Jews, the special voice, which make both HaKadosh Baruch Hu and human beings happy. Listen, this is a nice footnote here. But I'm sure that every group of Jews thinks that their tunes come from the Ben Mikdash or from before the Ben Mikdash. And if, if, let me tell you, if all the Sefaradim chanted something in the same way, I would tell you, you know what, maybe there's a fair chance that this all came from before the Ben Mikdash. But being that every, we didn't even mention the Yemenites, we didn't even mention, I mean, there are groups, everyone who's chanting something differently. I can't tell you, I can't tell you what it is where things come from, I don't know the evolution of the Tamim. I'm sure there are people in this world who have researched these things or have tried to research these things. What I can tell you though is certainly it is unique among Sefaradim. What do I mean Sefaradim? There are some, some who still know how to do this. I'm not certain that there are really any Sephardic yeshivot in the world who still teach these things. Maybe by Harav Mazuz and Bnei Brak, it could be that they still have this kind of uh, thing going, but from what I know, maybe a little bit in the Syrian community perhaps, but from what I know, this is almost unfortunately non-existent. But the Sephardim of, of the original Sephardic traditions had a different tune. Every part of the Torah has ta'amim, and those ta'amim are pronounced properly in a certain way. They teach you things about the text that is in front of you, how you read it, how you pronounce it, how you understand the things that are happening inside of the text. That's, and it makes sense that different books have different tunes, and that those tunes are traditions that are passed down from generation to generation. And says Rabbi Shem this is something that is unique. And 
Ashkenazim and Sephardi may both have tunes, but the tunes are not the same. So even the way we read the texts that we all agree upon are not the same. In my kila, Baruch Hashem, we have all kinds of Jews here. So we have uh, from Yemenite to Moroccan to Iraqi to Ashkenazi to Hasidim, whatever, whatever it is. And who reads the Torah by us? So we do have a few set you know, Korim, that they read the Torah, but I don't care. Everyone wants to come, and they should read. And for me, it's beautiful to hear that in my kila, everybody's ears are exposed to very different types of readings. And you can have somebody read the Torah in Moroccan, and then the Haftarah is read in the most eloquent Ashkenazi Hebrew you've ever heard in your life. And that's the way that it happens in Baruch Hashem, that at the very least, if we're not the same, we should be able to hear each other's tunes and know what they are. I'm sorry that I'm laughing. I don't. I was, but you, who goes? You know, in general, I stay away from 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 things like this. I never, I never want to offend anybody. But I will tell you one thing. Okay, one thing I will say: when you go to the kotel during Silichot, it doesn't make a difference the day before Yom Kippurim when everybody's saying Silichot, or three weeks before Yom Kippurim when only Sevardim are saying Silichot. It's almost impossible to find an Ashkenazi minyan of Silichot to the Kotel. Not impossible, but almost impossible. Am Israel in the masses, and I'm telling you the night before Yom Kippurim, there are easily 50, 60, 70,000 Jews at the Kotel for Silichot. If you've never seen this, you've never... I used to live in the old city, and I'll tell you, I used to experience it the opposite way. I couldn't open the door to my house because there are too many people in the street. So you'd have to like wait for moments, gaps between crowds to go out into the street. And or I didn't even think of going to the kotel. You just just to leave your home to to go to the grocery store, to the yeshiva, to teach, or whatever it would be. And you're talking about all of these tens of thousands of Jews, and you hear them all over Yerushalayim. You hear them. It's just what you hear. You like it, you don't like it, you're Ashkenazi, you're Yemenite, or whatever. That's the tune of Silichot that's happening at the Kondal. By the way, the opposite is true for, let's say, Bekat um, Kohanim. Very often the Bekat Kohanim that happens on Sukkot and other holidays is an Ashkenazi one. I do think that people vote with their feet. What I mean is, I think that there is something to be said about Sephardic Silichot that makes... 10-year-olds and 12-year-olds and 70-year-olds and 80-year-olds all want to get out of their bed in the middle of the night and come to the bed of Knesset and say it. And in the years, and I've Hashem, been around the block in many different places, in the years in which I prayed in Chabad communities or I went to Ashkenazi Yeshivot or I taught in Ashkenazi Yeshivot, I didn't find the same enthusiasm by Silichot as I did by the Sephardim. That much I can say. And, and I once had a boss. It was an Ashkenazi rabbi. It was a boss of mine. It was one of the more honest employers I had. And he said, if only the management of my yeshiva would allow me, I would demand that we prayed Sephardic Silichot in our Ashkenazi yeshiva, because then the students would come. Then the students would come. So it's different, yes. I also think that there's what to be thought of. There are times, when my, I'll tell you a story. When my wife and I first got married, so she came to San Diego from, from literally another planet. It's not even the same, another planet. And she came here. And Oshana was beautiful. She'd never heard some of these tunes before. You know, 
Achot ketana There's some beautiful tunes that happen on Rosh Hashanah. And then after Rosh Hashanah, it's like, wow, that was beautiful, but when do I get to do, you know, Rosh Hashanah my way? And it takes, there, there's a whole different feeling in the room. There's almost, if you're used to the, the somber, solemn, almost tearful Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippurim, days of awe, people are very scared, people are crying, people, if you're used to that, and then you come to the Sephardim, it sounds like we're making fun of the high holidays almost. It's almost like we're, we're too lightheaded during these holidays. And, there, and I'm sure there are people who feel that way, as much as they like these tunes, but it's not for them. They need, they need those... I remember when I was in Yeshiva in Baltimore, people would cry their eyes out in Rosh Hashanah. Cry their eyes out. And I, never, I didn't understand. I grew up... Don't think, I didn't grow up in some uber-Sephardic universe. I, it's pretty, pretty out of town, you would call it, not in any major Jewish community. But, you know, Rosh Hashanah was dip an apple in the honey, wear nice clothing, wear white clothing, even go to the Beit Knesset. It was a special day. We, we were happy with the Gadosh Baruch It's a happy new year. And then I came here, and, and wow, that was a whole different universe for me. And it took five years I was there. I never got used to it. I never got used to people being sad on Rosh Hashanah. But I saw the other way around, and there are people who are expecting to be this way, and they come to a Beit Knesset where everyone's clapping during the Selichot, and it sounds crazy. How do you clap and say, We stand in front of you. How do you do that? So I can imagine there's no right way or wrong way to do these things. I do respect, though, that different communities have developed different flavors and different feelings surrounding these holidays. And this is not me being politically correct. I really believe that there's what to be learned from each one of these communities. And, and you know, there are moments. There are moments where you hear, you hear the heartbrokenness, the shvirat lev of an Ashkenazi Siddichot, and it breaks your heart. And if that's the purpose of Siddichot, if the purpose of Siddichot is to break your heart, then that's the way to do it. But it could be that that's not the purpose of Siddichot. In which case, it could be that's why we develop different tunes around it. So I agree with you in your first statement that I think that the tunes very much reflect different realities or different feelings towards something. And I think that you definitely do feel that when it comes to the holidays and, and what we feel. So I agree. I agree with the point. Chavtet. Sephardim. You know, I have to just say, this is on, on this note. There are also cultural differences sometimes in these things. So, for example, yesterday somebody asked me a question about their husband had gone to a shiva house. Nobody should ever have to visit a shiva. Nobody should ever need to sit shiva. We pray for a time where that will all be behind us. But so long as the world works the way the world works, this person went to shiva home. He knew that his wife likes a certain kind of cookie from the shiva. And so he figured, listen, they're giving out these cookies over here. I'll take some home for my wife. And he brought her home food from the, from the shiva house. And she was mortified. Like, you can't even eat food at a shiva house. How do you bring me food from a shiva house? It's like, it's like haunted food, you know, it's, it's tameh food. You can't eat it. It's, it's, uh, how, how dare you bring this here? And then the question was, can I eat the cookie? I once did a funeral on Erev Pesach. Erev Pesach. This is a true story. I didn't finish the other story, but it's a true story. This funeral, El Pesach, was a very unique funeral. I needed a minyan people to come, so some people from Aikina came. Turns out one of my brother-in-laws from New York, he came also, he was in town with me for the holiday, and 
you know, the, the way it works here, I don't know how it is over there, but here there's a huge cemetery and there's a Jewish section of the cemetery and the rest of the section is not a Jewish cemetery. So you have to go through the non-Jewish section to get to the Jewish section. And he noticed this huge dumpster. And in this dumpster, every day people come and put flowers by the graves of their loved ones. And at the end of the day, the management comes around and picks up all the flowers and throws them in the trash can. And my brother-in-law, he thought, that's, um, they're throwing away perfectly good flowers. These are, look at these roses, look at these tulips, look at these, these are gorgeous flowers. And he started collecting flowers from the dumpster to make a bouquet and bring it home to my wife, to my mother, I don't know who he brought it home for, to bring them home for Pesach, a beautiful bouquet of flowers. All you have to say is these flowers came from somebody's grave. <laughs> it's enough to turn your very meaningful gesture into, into get that out of my house, I don't want it here. There's some, <laughs> and all he understood was how do you throw away such perfectly good flowers? Yeah. So here, there's a culture that I've observed, and it could be not everywhere in the Sephardic world. Shiva houses, you come and you eat and there's drinks and there's food and there's cakes and there's cookies and people are bringing food and taking food. And, and then there's a certain mentality, at least the Ashkenazi shivas that I've been to, where it's, it's not like that at all. There's no food at all. Maybe a, a pitcher of water or something, and they pray, and they do shiva, and they leave. And so for sure there's somebody who says, wow, this is a haunted cookie. Another person, well, this is a mitzvah cookie. I have to eat this cookie. And, uh, you know, these are, sometimes these things, they, they're different. They're, they're just... Chavtet. This is a beautiful one here. And this is something that I would say... Look at what we did. Sefaradim. Haben menashek yad aviv. The son kisses the father's hand when he goes to get an aliyah from the Torah. And if the father go, if the son goes up to the Torah, he comes back to get his father's blessing. And so too on Friday nights and the nights of holidays. After Kiddush, he kisses the hand of his father and his mother. And this is not the Minhag in Ashkenaz. Can I ask, is anyone familiar with Ashkenazim who kiss their parents' hands when it comes to Friday night or holidays or things like that? No. Any Sefaradim here that are familiar with this Minhag of kissing the father's hands or mother's hand? Um, so... In the Gibraltar Armenian that I used to go to, they used to do it, and the, the grandchildren also do it for um, on Shabbat morning when they met their grandparents in the in the synagogue. Uh, so after the show, they did it, or just whenever they came to say hi, um, so the the parent or the grandparent they would just automatically stretch out the hand because like they were just used to always kissing a hand. Oh, right. So this is but this and this was a cultural thing, which is just greeting in general. Greeting people in general, they you get hugs and kisses and all kinds of things. I'll tell you a true story. I'm here to start. I'm used to when I see my parents, I always hug and kiss them. But you know, my father, especially, I kiss the top of his head. My mother, I kiss the top of her head, and when I can. And so, this current house that I'm renting right now, I used to live in a small apartment. I had terrible neighbors. They didn't like Jewish people living next door to them. So we had a little bit of. Energy. I had to move the house. I couldn't really afford this house. It was above my rent abilities. And my father had decided, let's go meet the landlord together of this house. We'll talk to him. We'll figure it out. So we went to a Starbucks coffee shop. And of course, I'm always running a few minutes late. And my father is always there a few minutes early. So my father was there early. He was sitting with his landlord. And I come in to see my father. I see him sitting there. So I kiss my father's head. And I sit down and talk. My landlord, he's from Greece. He's a non-Jewish man from Greece. 
And he was so impressed that there are still people in this universe who kiss their parents and respect them. And that, he's like, listen, you tell me the price. You can, that's what we're going to do on this house. And Shalom, they didn't say Shalom, but it's later, but that it worked out that my kibbutz Amaim actually uh, gained me some benefit. There's a world in which there's respect given. And part of that respect is by hugs and kisses and kissing people's hands. And, and there's a world, by the way, where that's also not culturally a thing. That's just not how people show respect. And by the way, it's not respectful so much to kiss people who that's not a sign of respect to them. You're invading their, their privacy. But this has more than just culture. There's some religious significance to this. If I have here... I'm going to read to you from Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin's Ketel Shem Tov on page 212. Belondon ve Amsterdam. Nohagim haavot levarechet b'nehem belel Shabbat Kodesh achar avit o b'chnis adam lebayit. In London and Amsterdam, there's a minhag to bless one's children on Friday nights, either after services or when, when they enter the home. Aval be'eretz Yisrael, but in the land of Israel and in the area, the custom is to bless their sons and daughters after Kiddush, ben b'Shabbat, ben b'Yotov, whether on Shabbat or on Yom Tov. V'abanim holchim u'menashkim yidei avihem v'imam al gav yidehem, and the sons and daughters they go and kiss the hands of their fathers and mothers, meaning on the top of the hand. V'achakach av mesim yadav al rashehem, and then the father or mother puts their hand on their head. And he blesses them. And then he mentions the next minhag. And the custom in Israel and the Sephardic countries is that when the father or the grandfather or the father-in-law or his, a person's rabbi or their elder brother goes up to the Torah, Omed al raglav, we stay standing ad she'achzor al mekomo until they return to their seat. Veholech lehem, and we go to them, u'menashek idehem lekabel bechadam, and we kiss their hands in order to receive their blessing. Have you seen this custom in any of the kilot you go to? Yes, where one stands up for a father or older relative that's getting an aliyah. Yeah, or the rabbi gets an aliyah, so the whole kila stands up. It seems to me that by the Ashkenazim, this is only done for a rabbi. The rabbi gets up, so maybe the kila stands for them. I don't know. Is it done for fathers also? I haven't, I haven't seen it be done. But on, on the return, so the minhag is to kiss the parent's hand and get their bracha. You should know, the last year and a half of COVID has shaken up all of these minhagim. So in our kilah, with person tell you, I'm going to give hugs and kisses and back and forth, the way there, the way back. The, uh, you can already say, how long it takes you to, to get back from the Sevot Torah. But really, now everyone sits apart from each other and nobody's shaking big hands. And it's, it's created a whole different culture or lack thereof. Rabbi Shantov again suggests that this minhag is an old minhag. And that we find the Yaakov Avinu blesses the children of Yosef, and the, there is an idea of putting hands on each other's heads and kissing each other's hands, and he claims this must have been an Ashkenazi minhag also. But as culture separated us from each other, this fell by the wayside in Ashkenazi countries, and this did not become a thing anymore. There is a special idea according to Kabbalah, and most likely this is where this comes from, to kiss the hand of one's mother on Friday night. Have you heard of this? 
The Arizal mentions that one has to kiss his mother's hand. The Chida, Rabbi Chaim Yosef David Azulai, if I'm not mistaken, he would walk an hour and a half on Friday night to his mother's home to kiss her hand, and an hour and a half back home before he ate his meal in order to kiss his mother's hand on a Friday night. This is considered a very big uh, idea in Kabbalistic literature, to kiss one's mother's hand while one is still able to on a Friday night. The... Yeah, also by, by many Sephardim, this is the Minhag. And you'll find that if you look in the Kabbalistic L'Shem Yichud that is found before kissing a mother's hand and kissing a father's hand, the language almost implies we kiss the mother's hand because it's a big idea to kiss the mother's hand. And we kiss the father's hand to respect him so that he doesn't feel disrespected that we're only kissing our mother's hand. There's like such an idea written into the language over there. That we kiss his hand out of Kibbut Aveim, but, but really we kiss our hand because it's the primary act of what we're doing right now. When I spoke to Haraperetz about this minhag, Haraperetz doesn't like in general, doesn't like all the hugs and the kisses and the handshakes, and it doesn't like it. It's, it's not his thing in general. Uh, no, but, but if you're going to shake somebody's hand, for example, to do it in a warm fashion, hold their hand, take Shabbat Shalom, don't, don't just, you know, that and let them go. But he said this minhag of kissing the hands of parents, kissing the hands of Talmidei Chamim. This is something that all Jews, regardless of their ethnic background, should do. This is something that is very important. When we teach a child, when my child sees a rabbi, it doesn't make a difference which, which group he's from and who, where he's at. Now we're at a wedding. I was at a wedding last week, a Hasidic wedding. And this big Hasidic Rebbe came. And I, listen, I'm not, I'm not from this world and I'm not from... But this Rebbe came. I took my children over to him to give his hand a kiss. Why? It's part of teaching a child that we respect Talmudah Chamim. Now the same, we respect Talmudah Chamim, I'll kiss your hand, doesn't mean I believe everything you believe, it doesn't mean I accept everything you accept, but it means that we teach our children to respect Talmudah Chamim. When I, I'm in Eretz Yisrael, we meet the Talmudah Chamim, doesn't make them kiss the Talmudah Chamim's hand. That's something that a, a Jewish person is supposed to do. Somewhere in the Talmud it mentions that these uh, stupid Babylonian Jews, don't, nobody should get offended, there, there are a lot of sentences in the Talmud, are the Jews of Eretz Israel are speaking ill of the Jews that went to Babel, that went to exile. They said they kiss a Sefer Torah that is dead, but they don't kiss a Sefer Torah that is alive. Meaning they kiss a, a book of the Torah, but they won't kiss a Tamir Cham, who is really the Torah. One of the Chachamim, I don't remember his name, I'm talking about the Chachamim. He was a short man, and when he would need to get a book from the top shelf of his library, he would take books off the shelf, Shulchan Aruch, I don't know, whatever it was, and he would put it on the floor. He would climb on top of those books and take a book off the top shelf. And when his Talmudim asked, how do you step on books? I said, no, no, he can't even put them on the floor, let them step on them. He said, maybe you can step on them, but I am a Sefer Torah, and a Sefer Torah is allowed to step on books. Now, I'm not telling you you should behave like that. What I'm telling you is this, this inner, this innate kavod that is built. How do you expect a teenager to respect his mother and his father in the world that we live in? You can't. But from a young age, you do the things that are, actions count. You teach a child, kiss your parents' hand, kiss your father's hand, kiss your mother's hand, respect them, ask for their beracha. It means that you're programming into a child that their parent is someone important. Not only important, their parent is somebody whose blessing I want. These small actions in life will, will pay off. Aside from the basic biblical commandment to respect our father and mother. More than that, it helps build into a community, build into a family, these ideas of respecting Torah scholars, respecting important people, respecting parents, grandparents, father. Can you imagine if every son-in-law kissed his father-in-law's hand? I kissed my father-in-law's hand. 
can't kiss my Madonna's hand, but I'm sure in a different reality. But this, imagine if every daughter-in-law kissed her mother-in-law's hand. You can imagine a world like that? Now maybe some mother-in-laws that you know would just smack their daughter-in-law across the face. That could be a different story. I don't know. Those mother-in-laws are challenging individuals. But imagine a world in which people give kavod to each other that way. Let's keep. Other families, they have issues touching each other, like even between like brothers and sisters and like older boys and their mom. It's like they just like feel I don't know shy. It's not recommended. So I think for some reason some Jews they just like are scared to touch each other past a certain age, as if like they have leprosy or something. I don't know where it comes from. This like <laughs> thing of not touching opposite sex of your family when you're in the same family. Are you talking about like on a halachic level? It's a, yeah, I'm a, okay. Listen, I know that, um, I'm not going to talk brothers and sisters, I won't, I won't mention, but parents and their children. I'll tell you one, I, I'm, I don't know I, I'm allowed to speak, I'm, it's okay. I once saw a father and his daughter. What do I mean by a daughter? She was maybe in her 30s, she was married, she has children. But the way she was sitting with her father, I almost thought that they were married. I don't want to say more than that. Listen, there's also a way to, for a father and a daughter to be appropriate with each other. There's also ways in the world in which a person doesn't do. But to kiss one's daughter or one's son, hug them, to, to, in which world are we living where that's going to become a problem? And I'm sure, I'm sure, by the way, Miriam was saying, because I've seen it in my own eyes. I know what you're talking about. You're going to go get a blessing from your mother. Your mother can't give you a hug. Your father can't give you a hug. It's, a, it's an unusual reality where I'm not talking about situations where there are negative relationships, and I'm not talking about that. In a, in a healthy, operating family. You should know that this happens in the laws of adoption. I'm not going to tell you now, I'm going to tell you when someone adopts a child. So this child who was adopted is not biologically one's child. That's not. That's why they're an adopted child. And that affects issues like yichud, being alone with a child once they reach a certain age. It's like any other woman or man that is not related to you that is in your home. It affects issues of of touching each other and, and hugging each other and those things. I can't tell you now a psakalacha. I'm not interested in doing that over a video. You know, if it's ever relevant to somebody, they should go ask a tamikham with the But when I spoke with Haraperetz about this, Haraperetz showed me he has in his files a study that was done, I think, if I'm not mistaken, it was done in the United Kingdom. And Agapelz likes to read all kinds of psychology journals and things like that. So he pulled out a study, an old clipping from someplace. And he said, look here, there's this woman who took in a foster child. This foster child was nine years old, but was barely developed to a kindergarten level, maybe first grade level. Child is nine. So they, she adopted this child who was an elder woman who was a very warm person. And this child was hugged and kissed and played with and, and held at night and read bedtime stories too and the, sometimes came to his foster mother's bed. And, and within a year, this child was already beyond where they were supposed to be in development, both emotionally, physically, and intellectually in their school. Halapelz told me that hugs and kisses and touch, it's pikuach nefesh on a real, on a real level. This affection that we show children, that we show, I, I, I can say this. I once had a Tamil Kham who told me that his greatest regret 
is when he was younger and raising his children, the world in which he was, was a culture that you weren't supposed to be so affectionate to your children. He said in retrospect, he feels that was the greatest mistake he ever made of his life as a parent. This whole distance and not hugging and not kissing and don't, then there's, and I don't know how it is on the other side of the pond, but I know in America there's still this old world American father who's very rigid and very stiff and doesn't hug and doesn't say I love you and doesn't, the only thing that we do with that is, you know, my wife is a social worker, so fathers like that, they continue to fund my wife's profession. You know, there's still going to be need for this type of therapy in the world. But there's a way to fix people and, and heal them, and, and this is something that, of course, has to exist, has to exist in a healthy world. This next one, Lamed, is an interesting one. And I think I'm only going to do... Uh... Let's try it. Let's see what we get up to, and then we'll... Ashkenazim, by the Ashkenazim. And like I told you, I have no idea which order this, this list was written in. I, I, yesterday, I thought I discovered it was written in, it's in the wrong, it's not that order either. I don't know what makes this one follow that one or what comes afterwards. Ashkenazim, by the Ashkenazim. If the one who is being sued in the Bedin refuses to come to the Bedin. So let's say um, uh, Moshe is suing Yosef. And Yosef does not want to come to the Bedin. He's been summoned, he does not want to come. By the Ashkenazim, the sewer, so this one, Moshe, is able to hold up the public tefillah, or the Torah reading, until the community forces Yosef to go to the Bedin. Meaning he can come to the Bedin and say, sorry, nobody's going home today to eat their food until you guys force Yosef to come to the Bedin. But he has the permission to pause the tefillah, to use his leverage on tefillah to get people to come to the Bedeen. But the Sephardim, they don't even know of this minhag. They never heard of this minhag. He mentioned in footnote 73, many people think that this decree, he achat miklala takanot shetiken, הרב רבנו גרשום מאור הגולה, רבנו גרשום מאור הגולה, ואינו כן, כאשר זה, אבל זה לא נכון, זה לא אחד מהאנקמנט של רבנו גרשום, מי היה רבנו גרשום? אוקיי, מה עוד הוא נכון לו? קנימה? Okay, so he made a Takana against married two wives, that's right. He made a number of decrees. Not to open a letter from someone that's private. Very good, not to open up someone's private letter. Also from the Chayom of Rabbeinu Gershom. One or two generations after Rabbeinu Gershom, I don't recall now who, but one of the great Ashkenazi rabbis wrote, all of the Jews in this side of the world are students of Rabbeinu Gershom. And he was the ultimate authority in our lives here. And that's something, it's something interesting, how he got that influence in these Ashkenazi decrees are still in effect in many places in the communities. And many people think that this idea of a person being able to hold up public services to compel someone to, to come to the Bedin is one of them. He said, but it's not. And he mentions here, let's look at the bottom paragraph. Valpize, based on the above, Danti Bedati, I'm at the bottom paragraph of the page. I 
thought in my mind, Shasafaradim lo anahagu bekach, the Sephardim don't have this custom, Mishum shasovrim shala tzibur lishama lebedin. Because the Sephardim are of the opinion that one has to listen to the bedin. As opposed to, let me, let me try to unpack the sentence the way I understood it. By Sephardic countries, you listen to the Bedin. The Bedin had real power. The Bedin could put you in prison. The Bedin could find you. The Bedin could turn you over to the non-Jewish authorities. By Ashkenazi countries, the Bedin didn't have that kind of power. So who held the power? The community held power. The community was able to compel you to do things because they were the ones who shopped in your store. They're the ones who gave you food. They're the ones who gave you an aliyah. Whatever was important to you. You find this also with situations like agunot, what they call today agunot where a woman does not receive a get. So in a functional country with a functional bedin, we can force a man in all kinds of ways. I'm not advocating for violence. I'm simply saying that in halakha, there are all kinds of methods which we could use in order to force a man to give his wife a get once the bedin determines she deserves it. In Ashkenaz, you see that the bedin were quite powerless. And like is now done, very often they'll try peer pressure or, or going online and writing about people or boycotting their stores or harassing them at their homes. Harassing not necessarily in a negative way. These are not good people, so all kinds of things might be justified. But it's the community that is pushing people to go to Bedin. It's not the power of the Bedin that existed in, in the original Sephardic communities that compels a person to come to the Bedin. That's really what Rabbi Shantok Begin, I think, he's trying to say. Unfortunately, we live in a world where by the Sevardim or the Ashkenazim, the Batedim carry no power. You and I should probably have a conversation about Agunot in the modern world. Uh, I don't want to do it right now. I, I don't, everything is broken. The whole system is broken. It's not just Agunot. Everything is broken. So because everything is broken, nothing works. And you want to fix one problem, but it's very hard to fix one problem with a good solution when everything else is going to remain broken. So you could fix one problem, but the whole system is broken. I have a shiul about this that I touch on it lightly, but it's from a long time ago. Aval Sham, but he quotes a story by the Sephardim, by the Geonim, so by the Jews of Catalonia and Spain. Have you heard of him before? He was very much involved in the Maimonidean or anti-Maimonidean conversations that were happening around the Rambam's writings. He lived from 1190 to 1256 in Spain. He was very close to the Ramban. Uh, the Rashbah Monoplier quotes him also. Uh, and he, he was getting divorced from his wife. And for whatever reason, he wasn't going to the Beradin. His wife held up the services in the synagogue in Catalonia until she collected the money that he owed her from her ketubah. She refused to let the community pray. And so he says, you find that also in Sephardic countries this was once upon a time a thing. And then he mentions on the middle of the next page why he thinks that this custom doesn't exist anymore for Sephardim or Ashkenazim. But that really this never became a thing by the Sephardim, perhaps for the reason I mentioned to you above. Let me do one more with you, and then we'll call it a day. Okay? Just one more. The top of the next page. So that's 22, which is 20 in your PDF. Talit Katan. What is a Talit Katan? A small Talit. That is your... 
Tzitzit. Okay, when you say Tzitzit today, you refer to this clothing called Tzitzit. But what does Tzitzit actually, what does it mean, Mia? This is the fringes on right. the The strings are called tzitzit or tzitziot, but the the clothing is called a talit. Talit katan, talit gadol, but it's a talit. It's not. Today we use this as a colloquial term, tzitzit. So, talit katan. The sefaradim, they wear the talit katan under their clothing. They know nigalain, and you cannot see that they're wearing a talit katan. Ashkenazim, Viteman, the Ashkenazim, and the Yemenites, Nirim Le'en. You could see their talit uh, over their clothing. You could see their tzitziot over their clothing. And he has here an interesting footnote. Tam le minhag Ashkenaz. The custom of minhag Ashkenaz, the reason, Kidei Shira'em, so you could see your tzitziot. You want to wear your tzitziot in a way that you could see them. Visko ha mitzvot, and therefore you should remember the mitzvot. Kemoshe katuv, like it says in the Torah, Uri temoto, that you should see them, Uzchartem, and you should remember it. That's exactly what the Torah says, and because of that, Ashkenazim wear the tzitzit out. Then he sends you to Orachayim, in two different places, in chapter 8 and in chapter 24. In both of those places, what does Maran Rabbi Yosef Karo write? How should a person wear their tzitzit? Has anyone studied Shukhan Aruf before? Uh, chapter 8 or chapter 24? Maran mentioned... What? He said that the purpose is to, to see them, uh, but I don't remember anything about how to so like on top of their button-down shirt or on top of their... That's exactly what Maran says that one should do. How could it be the Sefaradim are not doing what Maran told them to do? Remember, Sefaradim were all about, we listened to everything Maran said. Remember those classes that I taught? How could it be the Sefaradim don't do that? Says, It seems like the Sefaradim were drawn after the Minhag of the Ari. Rabbi Yitzchak Luria Ashkenazi. Sheken haya noheg lidbosh atalit katan. Here there must be a typo. Because I went to look up in the Shara Kavanot of the Arizal and it's, uh, it's not what it says here. It should say tachat chaluko. Not agabe, tachat. That, unless you can read that in a different way. That he used to wear tzitziot under his clothing. The Arizal wore tzitziot under his clothing. I am Shara Kavanot and look in the Priyat Chaim. Uvmagen Abraham sham katav b'shem shar kavanot and the Magen Abraham writes the name of shar kavanot. Deotam that those Jews have mitiyaharim lelovshual gabei begadim. Those Jews who show off by wearing their tzitzit, their talit katan on top of their clothing are arrogant. Taut gadol biadam. It's a grave error on their end. Hefech haemet and that's the opposite of the truth. When the Kabbalists tell you the truth, what are they saying? The word the truth. What are they referring to? Very good. The, 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 the secret of the idea, the Kabbalah. Meaning, for whatever reason, and I'm not a Kabbalist here, but the Kabbalists say, the Arizal, Rav Chaim Vital records, that not only is it arrogant to put on your tzitzit on top of your clothing, but it's the opposite of the hidden intent of the mitzvah of, of tzitzit, which is to be hidden underneath your clothing and not on top of your clothing. Like I told you, it's not my pay grade. But that really seems to be the reason why Sefaradim don't follow what Maran Shulchan Aruch writes. I have a number of shiurim on this topic in our Shulchan Aruch playlist somewhere. 
uh, from the writings of Rabbi Bar Yosef and his sons and, and the rest. And what I can tell you though, for sure, regarding the strings, there is this attitude among Sephardim that Ashkenazim wear their strings out, and Sephardim, they wear their strings in. And Chalmud Yosef, he even writes all kinds of things about Sephardim who wear their tzitziot, the strings out of their clothing, and they show them off. They're, they're shedding a, a poor image on their forefathers as if their forefathers were not observant, and so on and so forth. What can I tell you? That Mori Harav Yaakov Peretz is of the opinion that the pshat of the Torah, the simple meaning of the Torah here, you should see your tzitziot, the strings, you should remember all the mitzvot of Hashem, and a person who wants to do the mitzvah of tzitziot should put their tzitziot out. Do you have to? I'm not going to go now. Mishnah Burah says some pretty harsh words about Jews who hide their tzitziot. In my opinion, he only writes those words about Jews who are embarrassed to be Jewish. Not hiding their tzitziot because that's their custom, but hiding it because they're afraid to let the people around them know that they're Jewish. Here I, will t- I wear my tzitziot out. Very often I get the question, how are you Sephardic and you wear your tzitziot out? Well, it might come as a surprise to everybody that not all of us are students of Chacham of Yosef. We may learn his Torah, but we're not all uh, carbon copies. Our Peretz's opinion is very different. In our yeshiva, there are people who put their tzitziot out, people put their tzitziot in. Really, I, in my life, tend not to focus on these things. I've, I feel that people get stuck on details all the time and, and that's all they see is, oh, is it in, is it out? Is it, Whatever a person does is what they do, but there definitely is a difference among Sevaradim and Ashkenazim about the tzitziot. When it comes to Yemen, he mentioned Yemen here. So my grandfather, Alam Shalom, my father's father, told me that when he lived in Yemen, they wore, imagine the talit that we have, but it was part of their clothing. So they wrapped themselves in a talit, almost like a sheet. You walk around in a sheet, that sheet had tzitziot on it, and that's what they wore all day and all night. So the tzitziot were, were your clothing. That's a talit. Literally, talit is clothing. So their clothing was made of a four-cornered garment, which had tzitziot on the corners. Most likely, that's what our forefathers wore also back in the day. It wasn't some kind of fancy clothing with a silver on it and, and stripes. and It was or an organic part of what you wore that had tzitziot on the corners. And I don't think anymore this is purely a Sephardic Ashkenazi issue. I think there are many Jews who in the workplace or in other such places have their tzitziot in, perhaps in other places that's not exactly the case. And what can I tell you? I've been all my life with strings out of my pants. It has never ever been an issue. Once, once I was stopped in an airport, I thought they were going to stop me because of like a security issue. It looks like wires. I don't know what it was. And they did think it was wires, but all they did, it was a TSA agent. They were very kind. The security agent stopped to tell me that my iPhone charger was hanging out of my pants and that I should put it back in my backpack. <laughs> I told him it wasn't an iPhone charger, it's just a tzitziot. Everybody has different customs. And I think, I think when we come to these differences, and we probably only have two more classes left on this list before we go on to the next topic of Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin. Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin is showing us over and over and over again that this very simple, it's a very comfortable statement to say, oh, Sephardim, Ashkenazim, we're all just the same. We all do this, ah, we pray a little bit different and we read a little different. And it's really not true. If you're going to line up the perfect Sephardic Jew according to this list, the perfect Ashkenazi Jew according to this list, meaning you're the stereotypical, everything Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin said is still being done, you're going to look at two different people who dress different, who look different, who pronounce different, who observe different, who sing differently, who read differently, who worship differently, who ob- everything is different. So how can you convince me these two different creatures are exactly the same except for X, Y, and Z? It's really not. It's, it's the ABC times two. That's how different we are from each other. And this is something 
This is something that we have to internalize because the whole purpose of this introduction is Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin's proposal to get the Jewish people to become one again. But he, in order for us to accept that the Jewish people need to be one, we have to accept there's a problem in the first place. So many people will say, oh, we're all the same, so why are you pushing unity? We're already the same. It's really not true. It's really not true. By the way, unity and conformity are also not necessarily the same. But that's for a different shoe when we get there. God willing, we have two more, two more weeks until we finish this list. And then Rabbi Shem Dovah is going to take us on one more direction before he offers what he proposes to be a solution. But God willing, we'll get there when we get there. I look forward to seeing you all next week. I am here for anybody who has any questions, comments. And for those who are heading out for the night, thank you so much. Laila Tov, and thank you for learning with me.